Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Today, we're going to start our new series on the best sermon ever. That's right. And it's the best sermon ever because it was given by Jesus. And it's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And the Sermon on the Mount can be found in the book of Matthew from chapter 5 through chapter 7, although there's parts of it in Luke too. And it starts with the Beatitudes. Chris, I think it's important for people to know right up front that in this sermon, Jesus is talking to believers. You're right, Rose. That's a very important thing to understand right from the start. Because if not, you will misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking specifically to those who are believers. This discourse is about kingdom life. It's about God's people and God's kingdom now and in the future. Right. Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples. This could refer to just the apostles because it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to take the 12 off by themselves to teach and prepare them. But it's possible and probable that the word disciples here included other believers who were with them. However, there were many unbelievers who were listening to Jesus speak. Jesus still had a large crowd following him that consisted of both believers and non-believers. So while non-believers heard Jesus' words, Jesus is specifically speaking to his church. Exactly. Rose, let's talk a bit about who some of those unbelievers probably were, just so that we can all try to get our minds thinking about some of the beliefs that were floating around about Jesus and some of the beliefs that were floating around about that time. And Jesus is going to refute some of these beliefs, so it's good for us to have them in our minds. For instance, groups like the Pharisees, who were concerned with keeping the Jewish law, but missed the internal change the law was pointing to. They would be kind of like Christians today, who tend to be legalistic rule followers without mercy and without joy that Christians are supposed to have. And another group would be the Sadducees. They would hold to the simple letter of the law, doing neither more nor less. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible to be true, and they were kind of like the worldly Christians today. And they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, future reward, or punishment, and they didn't even believe in angels. And then there were the zealots. They were the ones that opposed the Roman government. These people wanted Jesus to bring a new political kingdom to earth and rescue them from their present rulers. Kind of sounds like the pro-American religious right of today who put too much confidence and hope in having a Christianized government. And I know you, Chris, so you're not saying that that's a bad thing. No, I am absolutely not saying that having a Christianized government would be a bad thing. But... That might not be God's sovereign plan. I mean, it's great to have believers in power. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. And when the wicked are in power, they groan. And I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> the zealots wanted Jesus to usher in a nice, warm, and fuzzy government on earth. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, not a kingdom on earth. And as hard as it is to hear... Persecution brings revival and spreading of the gospel much more often than having a cushy, easy life. Just look at history. I know. That's what happens. Let's mention one more group who were around at the time, and that's the Essenes. This was a group that separated themselves and lived very, very austerely, both morally and without anything that bought pleasure. They didn't even use oil on their bodies. Some dabbled in mysticism and were obsessed with keeping lists of the names of angels. 
Most of them didn't marry, and if they did, they only had sex for the purpose of procreation. They'd be kind of like the Christians of today who do everything they can to remove themselves from culture and avoid anything that's pleasurable. Right. So think of these things as you picture Jesus preaching the sermon, and you'll see the wrong beliefs and the wrong thinking he was preaching against. And we'll try to point out some of that as we go along in the series. We will. All right, so Matthew 5 starts out with these two verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. These verses make it clear that while there may have been all sorts of people listening, Jesus is specifically preaching to and teaching his people. Then he dives right into the Beatitudes. This section contains a literary device called inclusion, or also known as bracketing. Both verse 3 and verse 10 end with the words, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we see a phrase bracketing other verses in between, we should think of these phrases as bookends, which describe in some way the part that's in the middle of them. So therefore, because these bookends, verses 3 and 10, say theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we conclude that the people described in between are those people who are going to be part of God's kingdom. Exactly. That's another way that we know the Beatitudes are meant for believers. It is who believers are right now, although we're not perfected yet, and also what we'll be like when the kingdom comes in its fullness in the new heavens and new earth when our sins are totally removed and we live holy lives. The kingdom's not just future, it's also present. Which is why the Beatitudes is not a list telling unbelievers how to get into heaven. It's not a checklist. The Beatitudes should be looked at in regards to our relationship with God. We as Christians are characterized by these things. It's what we already are, though not perfected yet. And that's a great point. The Beatitudes are indicatives. Jesus is telling his people who they are in light of what God has done for them. And then he's going to follow the Beatitudes with a sermon full of imperatives, ways they should live in light of who he just told them that they are. Chris, let's start looking at them. To begin, we need to understand what the word blessed means, since everyone starts with blessed. The definition of blessed in the Bible is more than just being happy or having some emotional type of feel-good status. Blessed means spiritual well-being, basking in the approval of God, and anticipating a happy future with Him. I always like the definition from the Amplified Bible for the word blessed. That definition is happy to be envied, and spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation regardless of their outward conditions. Both of these definitions do away with the idea of blessed, meaning feeling happy or gaining earthly goods or having earthly desires fulfilled. It blows those ideas out of the water. As it should. One last thing to notice is that the word blessed is in the past tense. We've already received the blessing because we belong to Jesus. As we said, we're not perfected yet by any means, but receiving the blessing is not dependent upon us living out these Beatitudes perfectly. So let's go on with Matthew 5 verse 3, the first Beatitude, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rose, we've already said the blessed are believers, since they're the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's start at what it doesn't mean. Being poor in spirit is not any of the following. It's not a virtue to be achieved by being poor. You're not to aspire to be poor. It's not about being humble. 
It's not about having low self-esteem. It's not a call to be one in spirit with the poor by helping the disenfranchised, neglected, or destitute, although that's a good thing. It's not a call to social action in order to try to usher in the kingdom of God or to help God bring the kingdom on earth. Chris, we're not partnering with God to do that. We aren't partnering with God to do anything. No, we're not. I get tired of hearing that said all the time about by Christians. Although Christians should be, like you said, all those things are things Christians should do and should be like. A Christian should be humble, should care for the poor, etc. We already said this is not what the Beatitudes are about. It's not a list of things to try to do or try to achieve. So what does it mean? The poor in spirit are those who realize they are utterly destitute of anything to offer God for salvation. They come with nothing. Therefore, poor refers to extreme poverty with no hope of your condition ever changing, if not for God. According to Ephesians 2 and other passages, we are dead in the trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Chris, dead is about as destitute as you can get. <laughs> That's about as destitute as you can get. You need a heart restart. Oh, so people who are poor in spirit realize there's nothing in them that would cause God to bless them with salvation. Titus 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're poor when it comes to what we have to offer for salvation. We have empty hands and we realize it. That's who Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. And there's a couple of the verses that tell us this. Romans 8, 7 to 8 says, Unless and until God has saved us, we're so governed by our sinful flesh that we're actually hostile to him. So if you've come to the knowledge of your sinfulness before our perfectly holy God and you've acknowledged your utter destituteness and need for Jesus' salvation, the Beatitudes are for you. Absolutely. Okay, so to finish up this first beatitude, let's talk about what the kingdom of heaven is. For believers, the kingdom of God is both now and future, like we said. Actually, God's kingdom has always been. When we think of a kingdom, we think of a ruler. And God has always reigned and had authority over all of his creation. Absolutely. And we're talking here more specifically about God's rule and reign over his chosen people. We call this his redemptive reign. Those who are not God's elect will not be in Christ's kingdom. God still rules over them. They're just not part of the redemptive reign. Instead, they'll be in darkness. And Christ ushered in his kingdom when he came to earth. John the Baptist says this in Matthew 3 when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is also a future reality for believers. In the new heavens and new earth, after Jesus returns, and sin and Satan are done away with totally and finally. It's Jesus who brings about the consummation of God's kingdom. It's not something, like you said, Rose, that humans can do, which, like I said, I'm tired of reading and hearing <laughs> over and over by Christians. We are not bringing God's kingdom to earth. Jesus is. Uh, amen to that. We, the church, bear witness to the kingdom. We're not partnering. We just bear witness. We're called to preach the gospel message. Jesus told the disciples the parable about the mustard seed in Luke chapter 13. In Luke 13, 18, he says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. 
We might plant the seed, but we can't make it grow. Only God can. We participate by spreading the gospel, but it's God who builds his church. He builds his kingdom. Jesus ushered it in, and Jesus will bring it to final consummation. Exactly. Now, getting back to Matthew 5, verse 4 is the next beatitude, and it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's talk about those who mourn. Like we said at the beginning, the Beatitudes are to be read as who we are in light of relationship to God. So it doesn't mean those who are mourning over the death of a loved one. It means those who mourn over sin and evil, especially their own sin, as we see with David in Psalms like 51 and 38. Right. And like you said, besides our own sin, believers also mourn over the sin of others and the failure of the world to give honor and glory to God. Ezra did this when he withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoahan, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. The sin of others should cause us grief as believers. We certainly rejoice when we see God praised, like when the Philadelphia Eagles won Super Bowl 52. We got to see some of the very first men that got a chance to speak after that give glory to God. That makes our hearts glad. Yeah. Likewise, it should grieve our hearts at the sin of the world. Yep. And true grief over our sin leads to repentance. Repentance is the act of asking God for forgiveness and turning from our sin. This is a continuous act, not a one-time deal. And the call to repent is done by first John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2, then by Jesus in Matthew 4, 17, then the 12 apostles call us to repentance in Mark 6, 12. True repentance isn't just asking God for forgiveness, but it also involves turning away from that sin. It doesn't mean you won't ever slip and do that same sin sometime again in the future, but it means that you feel sorrow over disobeying God, not just over the bad circumstances that might have resulted from your sin, and you want to, and you do turn from it. Exactly. Let's talk about the rest of that beatitude, which says believers will be comforted. I think the words, for they will be comforted, is best seen in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, where he's foretelling the deliverance of the Jews out of Babylon and giving us a picture of the Christian church, the bride of Christ, after he returns. That's a great example. The next beatitude is found in verse 5 of Matthew 5, and it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Chris, if we didn't understand this one right, we'd both be in trouble. <laughs> we would be. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so why don't you explain what it is? Well, those who are meek are not those who are gentle and shy and quiet and timid. It's not those who lack conviction and approve everything as being okay so as to keep the peace and not cause waves. Meek is not spineless. <laughs> no, it's not. And that's why we'd both be in trouble if that's what it meant. <laughs> Thankfully, what meek does mean in this passage is an attitude of humility and submission before God. We go to God meekly and humbly, recognizing we're deserving of his wrath and punishment. But we're also confident that we're not going to have to take on that wrath and punishment because Jesus took it for us. Right. Isaiah 53, the passage about the suffering servant, meaning Jesus, says that it was the will of the Father to crush him. That's tough to think about, and sometimes people misunderstand that. But the point is, Jesus going to the cross was always the plan of God. It wasn't plan B. 
God the Father chose a people to save, God the Son agreed to do the work of salvation, and God the Holy Spirit would apply that salvific work to the elect. And in speaking about the manner in which Jesus did the work of the Father, Isaiah 53 goes on to tell us that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus in humbleness and meekness went to the cross for us. Amen. Jesus humbled himself that much for us. And we should have the same humbleness and meekness before God. In addition to that, Jesus was gentle when he needed to be gentle. But he was not afraid to tell people the truth. In fact, he was forceful and unbending when it came to the Hmm. truth. Jesus was the ultimate servant and his obedience to the Father was perfect. He's the example we should be following. Absolutely. Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the meek will inherit the earth is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, as we see in Romans 4.13 and Psalm 37.7-11, which tells us, The wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. The wicked will disappear, but the lowly will possess the land. Chris, I think we have time today to go through one more of the Beatitudes and then we'll finish the rest up next in the next episode. So let's go to verse 6, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who seek God's righteousness. We are saved based on Jesus' righteousness, not our own. It's not external legalistic righteousness before men to gain the praise of men, and it's not an attempt to gain some type of favor from God. It's a desire to be more like Jesus because that's what brings glory to God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you're hungering and thirsting for something, you have a strong desire for it. Basically, all of Psalm 119 talks about this. The desire for righteousness is produced in us by the Holy Spirit working to sanctify us and make us holy, wanting more and more the things that God wants. Matthew 6:33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then in John 6:35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When we seek the things of God, understanding of his word, desire to be more like Jesus, he won't disappoint. He won't make you totally holy all at once, and it might be through trial that you grow, and you won't wake up one morning totally understanding scripture from one end to the other, as nice as that would be (laughs) and as much as you and I would both love it. But he will open your eyes more and more. Yes, he will. That's all we have time for today. Join us next week as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told, and finish through the rest of the Beatitudes. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, please leave them on whatever podcast platform that you're listening to or on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. And if you liked this podcast, 
please leave us a review and yes. uh, you know what do you call that the stars thing a rating. rating and review please leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast form you're listening to we would greatly appreciate it have a blessed day everyone